This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. You're in a time of disruption, and we're in one right now as we record this, but we're always in some form of disruption. We've got these two contrary impulses going on in our body and in our brain. There's one part that honestly just wants to hide. We're like, it's confusing, it's disrupting, it's uncertain, I'm anxious, I'm destabilized. I'm realizing that I'm, I'm consciously incompetent as to what's happening in the situation right now. Look, all I want to do right now is hide under a blanket. And then there's the other part of us that goes, hey, consciously incompetent, that is the learning experience. That's the learning moment where you go, wow, I'm seeing what's in front of me. I'm seeing what the path to mastery might look like. I'm seeing how bad I am now so that I can get better. So I am really interested just professionally, but just ongoing around what does it take to learn well? How do you learn in good times? How do you learn in hard times? And that's why I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend and today's guest, Pame Basse. So she is a lifelong learner who loves laughter, words, big ideas, and serving her community. Ekpedame is her, her formal name, but every all her friends like me call her Pame. She is the chief learning officer for the Kraft Heinz Company. And as well, so she's got a great perspective on what does it take at an organizational level to keep learning and moving. But part of what I love about talking to Pame is that's not all that defines her by any means. She is also the chief experience officer of the My 52 Weeks of Worship project, through which she facilitates courageous conversations about cultural and interfaith diversity and understanding. Her TEDx talk, which is terrific, it's called Navigating Sacred Spaces, is based on her project work and her book, My 52 Weeks of Worship, Lessons from a Global Spiritual Interfaith Journey. She's a graduate of Stanford, Northwestern, and, and this is cool, the Second City Con- Conservatory Program in Chicago. I did the uh, the Second City stand-up program here in Toronto, which didn't make me any funnier, but no matter. Pame, nice to have you here with me. So nice to be here as well, Michael. I love that you did the stand-up. Stand-up is hard. Stand-up hard is work. hard. Yeah, uh, and, and it's so different from improv because yeah. improv I've done a little training on and it's actually about being in the moment, you know, yeah. that whole yes and mentality where you accept what shows up and you adjust to it. Sure. Whereas, and you have, you have your friends who are supporting you. It's, it's ensemble work. <laughs> when you're on the exactly. mic by yourself, it's just be funny. Oh, it's like be funny. And it turns out it's almost the opposite of improv because great stand-up is – it's like a it's a perfectly timed one person play. Like yeah. it's all about the timing and the beat <laughs> and Absolutely. the kind of the pattern. And as a facilitator, I find myself right in the middle, right? I'm like, I'm not good enough to be spontaneous and trust the thing, nor am I disciplined enough to learn my script. It was like, ah, it was so hard, but it was it was fun at the same time. Very cool. Hey Pemme, tell me about this whole idea of a sacred space. How do you how do you even define what a sacred space is? 
Um, that's a wonderful question. And, and to answer it, I'll take you a little bit uh, back a few steps to the, the My 52 Weeks of Worship project, which started in 2010 when I made a personal commitment to visit a different place of worship every week for a year. So churches and synagogues and mosques and living rooms and temples, you name it, from the south side of Chicago to South Africa, um, from Brazil to Brooklyn. Amazing. And it started out, I mean, it was transformative. And I actually did it twice, one just all over the world. And then I did it again, just in Brooklyn, a year of 52 worship experiences, because Brooklyn is like a microcosm, <laughs> right? Um, so the thing that was interesting about that is a lot of times when people talk about worship, they think they have to go to a place, right? Yeah. I have to go to church. I have to go to a mosque. And there is the community element of that that is really powerful, but I had one experience during that 52 weeks where I went to a living room in a suburb of Chicago. I took a friend of mine because I'm not of in the habit of just wandering into people's living rooms. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, right. And it was a worship tradition that I had really little you know, information or comfort with. Um, so it was stepping out of my comfort zone quite a bit. And we were in this living room and first we were kind of chatting. And then the person who was leading experience said, okay, we're, he just, we're going to start. And he started basically transforming this living room into a sacred space. There was incense, there were words, there was ritual, and you could feel the energy of the place changing. And it was really inspiring because it made me realize, and not, you know, not the first time I had thought about it, that any space can become a sacred space if it is a right. place that you transform and you say, okay, now I'm going to focus on what do I believe? What, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning? What is going to help me through this difficult time or help me celebrate this wonderful thing that has happened? And so when I talk about navigating sacred spaces, of course it is find the place of worship that works for you, but it really can be anywhere, right? Um, and there is a solitary aspect of it. And then there's a community aspect of it. But basically I, in my travels, have determined that there's a sacred space for anyone who seeks it no matter who you are, what you believe, or what you choose not to believe. Oh, there's so much here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like I know you're the CLO of Kraft Heinz, but I'm like, wow, I just want to talk about this for about five, 45 hours. All right, so here's my first question, which is why do we need a sacred space? What does what purpose does that solve? What what? How is that a bomb? How is that a place of? I mean, what what does entering a safe a sacred space allow us to then do or to be? Yeah, sure. So if you live long enough, my friend, you realize <laughs> that you know we can be victors or villains, right? Right. So you know there are very few people who are purely amazing or purely you know a, a tragedy. Present and so company I think, accepted, obviously. <laughs> exactly right. I'm right there with you. So the sacred spaces allow us to go and find that uplift that it's necessary to say, I want to be at least try to be the best version of myself. I want right. to really figure out how I can spend time thinking about whatever my protocol is. And I'm very agnostic. I mean, I have my own religious practice, which I hold very dear, but I'm not yeah. an evangelist in any way. So whatever it is that works for you, if nothing works for you, that's fine. And so that sacred space allows you to really soak in whatever it is that helps you get out of bed in the morning and whatever your value um, uh, structure is. And if you're lucky, that sacred space is full of others who are helping you to do that, who believe the same thing, who are supporting you, who believe that you can be, you know, a victor more often than a villain. Um, 
So I think that yeah, we're. So, I mean, yeah. I've just been reading um, some white papers put out by something called the Sacred Design Lab. I don't know if you've come across their work, but they they wrestle with the these papers anyway around the the insight that look millennials are. Um, have have increasingly less faith. This is in America. Like most most millennials aren't uh, followers of a traditional or formal followers of a, a religion, and most millennials define themselves as, in air quotes, spiritual but not religious. And they point to the the rise of sacred space outside the kind of the the constraints of a religion you know they're like soul cycle <laughs> that's a sacred space for some people because it comes together there's community there's ritual and there's this commitment to the better version of yourself and i'm really intrigued by this whole idea of the power of sacred space even if like me like i'm i am an atheist but i'm very drawn to this idea of the transformation of sacred, the transformational ability of sacred space. How do you, are, are there any kind of core elements that you just need to create sacred space? I mean, what are the, what are the ingredients that you just must have? That's a great question. I mean, I think intention is one of them. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of different organizations that I ran across when I lived in New York. One is called Nuns and Nuns, N-U-N and N-O-N-E. So to your point, like <laughs> oh, these I are people <laughs> who have, who have, you know, devoted their lives to the church and people who are, you know, in that kind of spiritual, but not religious, but we're all committed to doing mm. great things and being our best selves. So that intention is there. Um, I think there is a, desire to really think about what matters to you. Um, and in some religions that's provided for you generations, yeah. right? And so, mm. you know, this is what I believe. This is what my parents believe. This is what my grandparents believed. This is how we walk through the world. Um, in this particular situation that I shared with you, there was, like I said, there were elements, like there was incense, there was a candle, yeah. there was something that happened, like we're lighting this candle. And in that moment of lighting the candle, transformation is happening living right. room becomes sacred space so you find your ritual right often you know maybe there's some essential oils before you start meditating or maybe there's in so i think that you find start with the intention of wanting to create that sacred space you find people who are like-minded to yeah. either be there with you or inspire you read great works whether that be a bible or a quran or just an inspiring moment uh, inspiring text and then yep. what is it, the thing that you're doing to say, okay, now we're transforming, you know, this corner of my kitchen into a sacred right. space with a candle or something. Um, I love that. I, I mean, I love the, the sense of intention is essential. And I absolutely yeah. believe that. And then this idea of ritual, meaning there's some sort of formal way of opening and formal way of closing. So we know that those are the big, that's the beginning and the end. And and then allowing transformation to happen. And, you know, I, I see more clearly now than I did at the start of this conversation, the very short leap from that to what it takes to champion learning in an organization. Yeah. It's like, it's the same, <laughs> it's yeah. different, but it's the same. Um, do you, do you think of your role as chief learning officer and, helping learning happen within Kraft Heinz in similar ways, like we're trying to create sacred space for transformation? 
It's a really great question. I mean, I think that one of the one of the joys of the work that we do, and anyone who works in people, is you're really helping people to make their lives, their dreams come true. You're you're enabling people to transform in ways that allow them to be great yep. in their current role and grow great careers. And for most people, that translates into this is what I want for my life. This is what I want for my family. This is what I want to be able to provide or experience. Right. And so in the same way that in a sacred space, the way that you might speak of, you know, a worship space is a place where I feel like I can learn and grow and be supported and try things that are aligned with the person I want to be and apply them and then say that worked. I'm going to keep that or that didn't work so well. I'm going to discard that learning and development, even in a corporate space allows me to say learning is your superpower. Learning a commitment to learning will help you be great in your life, in your role, and help you to move from where you are to where you want to be, to acquire the knowledge you need to to do all the things that are important to you. Um, And so I do see a connection and a bridge there. Um, And it's kind of neat because you might not originally think like, wait, what? You're going to talk about this? You're going to talk about that? Those things are connected, but I think they are. Yeah. How do you make learning important within organizations because everybody agrees it is in theory (laughs) and in practice there are all these demands around getting stuff done and hitting certain metrics and being busy like this and you know if you ever go into to to run programs in an organization you've always got a bell curve in the room. You've got some people who are like, I love this stuff. <laughs> I soak it up. I mean, that's what I'm here for. And you're like, oh, I love you. You're, you're the keeners. And then you've got the, you know, the, the prisoners, as they're sometimes called, the people who are like, mm-hmm. ah, I'd rather be anywhere else in the world other than in this classroom with you right now, whether that's a, a real classroom or a virtual classroom. And they're, they're there out of, I'm just here to tick a box. And I'm not that interested. And then there's the people in the middle who are like, ah, oh, you know, I'm kind of interested. I'm kind of not interested. I kind of hope this will be good. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I've got, I can feel my email piling up as we speak. How do you, that, and, and then you, then you've also got the senior leaders of your organization who are like being measured, not by how much their people have learned, but by what they produced and what, what targets they've hit. How do you champion learning? when in theory people are with you and in practice they might not be with you quite as much sure and i'm familiar with all of those people that you <laughs> described i know them all well throughout yes. my many years in learning and development i think there are a couple things one is as a learning professional you know i was born and raised out of a a a, a camp of learners that said you know we need to make this interesting engaging relevant so you know if people are you know, bored to tears by the learning experiences that we're creating, they feel like they're wasting their time. And now, you know, when I started, because I'm 140 years old, there were no smartphones. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There were no smartphones. There was, I mean, it was just just general human distraction. Now, you know, you'll be at the front of a room and people pull out their phones and you know it's over. Like, I lost Right. So, you know, the what's in it for me is very important to really make sure that people come and are delighted by, wow, this is actually relevant to what I do. I had no idea that would be the case. And then you mm. you have converts so that at the level of the actual course or learning program, really trying to be thoughtful about um, making it something that people can take back to their desks and immediately try and apply. But I think at a more kind of learning champion level, 
you lead by example, right? So in terms of the enthusiasm that you have for learning and being able to show that, you know what, I am busy too as a chief learning officer, but it's important to me to make time for learning. And in the same way that we talked about worship, where does learning happen? It happens where it happens. People to ask me all the time, well, what counts as learning? Right. It, it all counts. You read an article, that counts. A conversation, that counts. Did you take a course? That counts. Did you just find, you know, talk to someone in the organization that you had never spoken to before and they gave you a different perspective on the challenge that you're facing? And so really doing the work to share with people that all learning counts and all is valuable and I make time even at my quote unquote busy. And I don't love the word busy because who's not quote unquote right. busy, but we all have our highly scheduled. We all have our things, but making time to learn, to reflect on what you learned and then to try to apply it and see like, nah, that worked. I'm keeping it. Nah, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. Um, I think that cycle is important. And even that, that, I mean, that's, you kind of casually mentioned that cycle, but it's everything, which is learning is not just reading the book. Learning is the intake, the reflection on what you've just taken in, and then the attempt to embody it and to practice it and to go, well, what did I learn from that? And it's in that cycle that the, the actual progress happens. Absolutely. And I, I talk about it often, you know, creating a culture of continuous learning bold creativity and intellectual curiosity. And that is like the thing that I, like that I repeat. And one of my employees, we were in a meeting, you know, we were talking about the impact that kind of having a learning commitment has had on them. They said, we see a culture of generosity. And I just thought, well, tell me more. That sounds fantastic. Right. That's because that's what I want to ask. Tell me more. How, does, <laughs> right. how, how are those connected? And I'm like, wow, I haven't thought about that. Well, imagine Michael, you learned something. You yeah take the time to reflect on it. It means something to you. You share it with somebody. That's really generous. Or you learn something, you say, you know what, this is not for me. It has no relevance to, to but I bet Pam A would really like, I know right. that in the, in the challenge she's facing or the role she has, this might be useful to her. Hey, let me just send this to her. So when people are committed to having a daily learning practice, a regular learning practice, you're taking in ideas and you either are sharing them because you think that they are relevant to everyone or not relevant to me, but totally useful for you. And in that culture of generosity of sharing what you learned after you've reflected upon it, it's yeah. like it was an unintended, amazing consequence. So for me, you know, we're in the middle of we're we're in some we're in COVID nineteen. I don't know if it's the middle or the start or the end, which nobody knows. It's happening. Uh, yeah. It's happening, and you know, basically, freaking out is happening at all levels of society and organizational life. Um, I'm curious to know how you've thought about learning and championed learning within Kraft Heinz during these confusing times. It's a great question. Um, first, you know, we started a project or, or a movement, if you will, a campaign last year called Learn Like an Owner, which really encouraged people to seek out high impact learning experiences, make a learning commitment, even if it's just a few minutes a day and encourage others to do the same. And so, and I did my own 365 days of learning. So for an entire year, I learned something new and shared it out with the organization modeling as a, as a learning leader, what that looks like. And that was impactful, but what's happening now that we are in this moment of, you know, this global moment of uncertainty is I'm able to say, take that learning habit 
and apply it to the situation that we're in. Right. Um, the best way to deal with crisis or uncertainty is to just embrace your learning superpower and learn your way through it. So what do you need to do? What, like, Be relentless in finding information that will help you be great in this moment or be okay and be selective. Like what are the trusted sources of learning? Like there's so much happening. You can't listen to everything. You cannot take in everything. Be selective in how you are moving forward. So really encouraging people to learn their way through it. And that is, you know, somewhat philosophical, but also we have, you know, courses, online courses that people are taking. We have playlists. If you're, if you're in, you know, if you are investigating this area of expertise, you can take these courses. We started a a speaker series, bringing in speakers to say, we're going to talk about um, these topics that can be very useful to you as we're walking through this together. And so really using that campaign, which began just as, as a, a tool of, of learning transformation to help people make their way through what nobody really thought. And I, you know, I like, I was, we use the word unprecedented and I know it's not really unprecedented, but it sure took people by surprise. Right. So <laughs> here we are. And how can you, yeah. How can you think, learn your way through it? Yeah, it's, it's not unprecedented, but it is surprising and uh, unexpected and destabilizing. Yeah. All of absolutely. that is absolutely true. All of those things. Pame, how do you how do you figure out who a trusted teacher is? You use that phrase, and I, and I love that. There's there is a vast amount of content in the world. Um, you know, everybody's like, here are my seven steps for, here's my TEDx talk on. Mm-hmm. And for me, certainly, I'm on this ongoing quest to go, who are the people who I feel are, are profound teachers for me? And who are the people who feel like they're I'm charlatans, too strong a word, but they're just, they're, they're not they're not my teachers. Um, how do you find your teachers? How do you find your trusted authorities? Yeah, again, a, a real intersection between what I did with my 52 weeks of worship and what happens when you do something like making a learning commitment, right? Yeah. You, you, you put yourself in different environments and you put a mirror up and say, hey, is this for me? Mm-hmm. This is not for me. And, you know, when I was going through the worship experiences, there were times where I was even in my own religious tradition. I was like, I don't know this take here. I don't know. <laughs> right. Or, wow, I never thought about that thing from a completely different worship experience or worship tradition that I want to take on. Like, I love chanting or I love meditation. And similarly, when you commit to, you know, for me, it was 365 days. Like, let me try this. Let me try a LinkedIn learning course. Let me try a Harvard Business Review article. Let me try this podcast. Let me read a book by someone who, you know, some like Michael told me this is a great, you know, a, a great um, thought leader. And yeah. then I put a mirror up. Did that work for you? You want to try yeah. that? Or no, I don't really need to use that. And as you go through that process of taking in ideas, you then say, I can always count on this person to give me a perspective that is useful. Mm-hmm. I can always count on this source. Um, and I don't think it's really a never ending, like, okay, here are my 10, I'm done. You know, you still have to, from time to time, take into new information, but there is a wonderful gift that comes when you open yourself up is that you're able to take in things and realize this works for me, this person I respect. I understand how they communicate their beliefs right, or right. The information. And I'm going to, it's like the following technique. Everybody's following people. Who do you follow? 
people hopefully yeah. that inspire you, that can challenge you, that you think are not charlatans. That's, yeah. You know, so I think it's a, and, and the learning practice reveals those trusted sources to you. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I realized that I have three categories of books in my life. I have, because I get books regularly, some from the library, some that get sent to me because, you know, I'm a C-list author, so people want my endorsement. Um, and uh, and some I buy. Um, and one category are the, the books I look at and I go, okay, I've understood this book by reading the, the index list <laughs> the chapter list yeah and done. and they've and they've quoted southwest airlines as their their main story i'm done this is just a rehash of stuff and it's not that interesting there are other books where i read them and i'm like you know what there's something really interesting in this idea here and it's not it, i don't love the way it's been presented but i it's provoked me to think differently so i keep those books um and then there are some books where I'm like, oh, this is this culmination of thought and design and mm -hmm. rigor. And and basically, I wish I'd written this book. <laughs> I was yes. like, ah, why, why can't I write like that or think like that or be articulate like that? And those are my books that I will pack up and, and move between offices and carry and keep and stay on my top shelf as my kind of my precious, my precious text. Um, and that's a useful hierarchy for me to figure out who my teachers are in all of this. Yeah, I mean, there's some book I, I know. I'm I'm reading The War of Art right now, oh, and reading it like it, it's just like delicious morsels. I don't even want it to end. It's so delicious. Um, and there are books like that that, to your point, like this. And I want to read everything this that, that this author has written. And I, I I love books. It's something that you know I yeah. I, I am like you. And I think that's absolutely right. Some of the things are like, okay, great, got that, you know. And some are like, oh, I just want to soak in this and really yeah. let it um, be. Well, a I, love that, I love that you mentioned the War of Art because the author Stephen Pressfield, he was my very first person I interviewed for my first podcast before there was even things called podcasts. Uh, you know, the author of the War of Art. And it's, it's not a great interview because I didn't know what I was doing and the technology was terrible and all of that stuff. But he was the first person I reached out to going, I love your insight about resistance. I love your insight about how to show up as a professional, how to show up as an amateur. It's a really powerful book. Um, and it's, it's cool that you're, you're, you're looking at that right now. Every page is like, I don't want this to end. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, frankly, when I, when I wrote my first book, um, the, I was trying to, you know, sell it, you know, pitch it to all kinds of, uh, publishers. And one yep. publisher said, you should read, do the work. Um, yep. and that is also Stephen Pressfield. And then I, that was equally delicious. And I send it to people sometimes when I know that they're trying to make something happen. Yeah, um, that's so right. This has now turned into a Stephen Pressfield commercial. But, <laughs> um, the point well, is enough, his other stuff is kind of like, uh, kind of fictional stuff around war. So it's not, oh. not, our, not my style of writing or my type of book at all, but those two books are his classics on how to show up and be the best version of yourself. Which, I mean, you just said the words, Michael, right? When you talk about learning, when you talk about finding your inner, um, what, what drives you, yeah. like you want to show up and, and, and be the best you can. Like, and, and the people who, who resonate with that, they're like, oh, thank you for showing me how to make time to do that because we are all so busy and especially in a corporate environment like the one I work in. Yeah. People are just, you know, highly scheduled to the point where like, you want me to do what? Take, <laughs> right, exactly. Take, just take 10 minutes for yourself and take in new ideas and 
you know, think about them. And then once you realize how powerful that habit is, then you can apply it to a course or a credential or a curriculum, right? Because at some point you have to learn like very specific things to be great at the role. Like you can't just pontificate and then become a great CFO. Like you have to focus yeah. on a specific area of topic yeah, you area. You need some technical expertise. Exactly. But believing that learning can help you to be great can power you. Um, when you have to focus. So I, it's both for me, it's the culture and the mindset. And then it is, of course, the tactical delivery of effective and engaging courses and learning programs and learning events and all the things that maybe more traditionally are necessary within corporate learning. For me, this has been a, a, a beautiful conversation. I knew it would be. Um, for people who want to find out more about you in the world, where can they find you? Well, I tend to post many, many things, my writings, et cetera, on my LinkedIn page. So there are not too many PAMAs in the world. You can search for me that way. Um, and also for my 52 Weeks of Worship, I have a website, my52wow.com, uh, my52wow.com. For me, you're awesome. Thanks for this conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. I had ball. Thanks. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.